I don't quite remember the first time I realized my upbringing was racist. I don't even remember when I learned the concept of discriminating against someone based on the color of their skin. All I know is that I look back and see it for what it was. It was at once a difficult upbringing, but from my perspective, it was the only childhood I had. I did not know there was anything shockingly wrong about it. It just was. Some people were poor, like us. Some people were not. Some people were Chicago Irish. The rest of the world was not. (laughs) And by extension, some people were white, and those other people down the road were not. It took a good long time to be able to admit this about myself and my family and my culture. It took an even longer time to be able to talk about it, to name it, to forgive it, and to commit myself to not perpetuating it. Race is not easy to talk about, especially in the United States, which is shocking to say and realize when the history of our nation is so intricately wrapped up in race and racism. I wonder if it has, to ha- has something to do with American exceptionalism, that attitude predominant in our culture that does not want to admit defeat, defects, or any weakness at all. It's an attitude that we see run rampant on the national stage. Whether we want to talk about race or not, it remains a very real part of our everyday existence. The divides are still there. There are black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. Sunday morning is still the most racially segregated hour nationwide. White flight still happens. Gentrification still displaces communities of color, and the list goes on and on. We've discussed at length here before the very real systemic issues that perpetuate racism in America. This morning, those are still a reality. They have not magically disappeared as much as we would have liked, There are still more black men in U.S. prisons than there ever were slaves in our country. Graduate-level, educated people of color still earn less than white people with the same education level and less experience. Again, the lists could keep us here all day. But even the simple act of talking about race is difficult. I wonder how many of us have felt our blood pressure rising at the thought of having to talk about race, or a feeling that right this minute. There's always a fear of getting it wrong, of stumbling and saying something racist, of contributing to the problem yet again. For example, have you or someone you've talked to ever been describing someone only to start whispering, he's African-American, she's Latina. I know you know what I'm talking about. I've done it, and I have no idea why. I've heard people do it and wondered, what on earth are we whispering about? Race is so very hard to talk about. But here's the real kicker. Not only is race difficult to talk about in America, it is perhaps even harder to talk about in Unitarian Universalism. One of the most progressive religious traditions who were amongst the first to advocate for the abolition of slavery, who answered the call of Dr. King and marched for civil rights, and who still answer the call again and again, 
race is still a difficult thing. Maybe it's because those successes I just listed makes Unitarian Universalist congregations feel as if they're done on race. We've solved the problem. (laughs) Or maybe it's the delusion of minimization. Many a UU has uttered the words, well, I just don't see race. But race exists whether or not you see it. And there are real problems that need to be addressed and talked about. And then again, I wonder if Unitarian Universalists harbor some sort of guilt along with the rest of the nation. Racism is so great a problem, how could we possibly respond? How are we ever going to see the promised land that we've preached and talked about, the beloved community that we talk about every single Sunday? As with most, most things, I believe Unitarian Universalists can find some of the answers in our shared history. Along with the great successes our religious tradition has had in being advocates of justice, there are stories of heartbreak that we need to hear. Stories that tell us of great disappointment, missed opportunities, our tradition's own struggles with race. And yet, at the end of the day, tell us there is still hope, no matter what, no matter how we have messed up. Here is one story that is bittersweet to our history It centers around the life and legacy of a man named Don Speed Smith Goodloe. Goodloe was born on June 2nd, 1878 in Jared County, Kentucky, in the small town of Lowell. Now, if you've never heard of Lowell, you're not the only one. And as far as I can tell, it's an unincorporated town just outside of Paint Lick. And if you've never heard of Paint Lick, (laughs) head south and turn right at Berea and you just might stumble upon it. And if you've never heard of Berea, welcome to Kentucky this morning. (laughs) There's still a little mystery around the town of Lowell. There is no remaining town center, not even a gas station or post office. By all accounts, it was a farming community made up primarily of African Americans. There's not much known about Goodloe's early years other than his connection to Jared County. Garrett. 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 Oh, man. You know, let's talk about this. I watched a video on how to say this county's name, and I did it wrong. It's like when I was talking about Rowan County four years ago. My, Garrett. Garrett. Let's all learn. Garrett. Garrett County. It's like Athens. Man, all right. (laughs) Let's be honest here. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Other than his connection to Garrett County. Did it right. We're all learning together. It was known that Goodloe eventually lived in Tennessee and attended Knoxville College, which was a segregated school whose purpose was to teach future teachers, ministers, and farmers. It was what was called a normal school in those days. There in Knoxville, Goodloe learned the principles of Booker T. Washington's philosophy for black education, which advocated that blacks should receive the same ethical and practical training as whites. This was considered cutting-edge educational theory in the late 1800s, that blacks could learn the same things as whites. After graduating Knoxville College, Goodloe moved to Madison County, 
That one I can say. (laughs) Where he finished his training to be a teacher and met his wife. After being a principal in three schools around Tennessee and Kentucky, he suddenly felt the call to earn additional degrees. Here's a man that had already attended two colleges, and he needed more. At the time, he was a principal back home in Garrett County. So naturally, he thought Berea College would be a solid option for him. Sadly, since his last time living near Berea College, the Kentucky school segregation laws were validated, as were many others across the country in the Supreme Court ruling in Plessy versus Ferguson. Berea, once an integrated school, was no longer. Goodloe and his family instead moved to the town of Meadville, Pennsylvania, right at the doorstep of the Allegheny Mountains. Goodloe was a Methodist most of his life, and so he enrolled in Allegheny College, a small Methodist college that accepted black enrollment. Interestingly enough, he also enrolled simultaneously at Meadville Theological School, the Unitarian Seminary. Despite his Methodist roots, Goodloe had given up on conservative conservative doctrine and beliefs in Methodism. And he knew he would never make it in a Methodist seminary. But the Unitarians, oh, the Unitarians, they had no creed to follow, even in the early 1900s. So he enrolled and became the fifth black seminarian to ever be at Meadville Theological School. And he would go on to be the first to graduate. Now let's soak this in a little. Goodloe already had a degree, formal training at two colleges, and went on to graduate simultaneously from a third college and seminary. The president of Meadville Theological took Goodloe aside during his studies after seeing he was becoming more and more Unitarian by the day and told him bluntly that even though the Unitarians advocated for abolition, even though they believed in the equality of the races, even though the religion was progressive and believed that all people had it within them to improve their character. Despite all of this, Goodloe was informed that no Unitarian church had ever called a black minister and no Unitarian church would ever want the scandal of ordaining a black man. Goodloe, as we know, graduated from both schools at the same time. He continued his career in Danville, Kentucky, and went on to Bowie, Maryland. He would go on to become the founding principal of Bowie State University. He continued his educational pursuits for the rest of his life. He advocated for adequate funding for black education in Maryland. It is rumored that the state of Maryland eventually refused to renew his contract because he was causing a ruckus over funding black education. He spent the rest of his working days selling insurance in and around Washington, D.C., and he died in 1959. His funeral was held at All Souls Unitarian in D.C. He was never ordained by the Unitarians. Students of history will know that during the rest of his lifetime, he could have eventually been ordained, with the first African-American, Ethelred Brown, being ordained in 1912. No one knows exactly why Goodloe never pursued it in his later life. Perhaps the disappointment he faced was too much to overcome. Here was this progressive religion that advocated equality, but not yet. 
not yet for Goodloe, not yet for blacks that felt called to the Unitarian ministry. This story for me is especially heartbreaking as it involves my alma mater, Meadville Theological. But this story does not end in despair. Bowie State University still exists to this day. The good impact Goodloe had on black education in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Maryland is still felt. His descendants still attend Unitarian Universalist churches. He did a lot of good despite the racism he encountered in his life. So why tell this story? Why lift up the bittersweet? Because there are in our shared history stories of devastating heartbreak. But here's a story of a man whose gifts were lost to us. Not because of insidious, overt actions, but because of measured pragmatism. He was discouraged from the ministry of our tradition with the words, not yet, and there's nothing we can do about it. For the Unitarians at the time, it was a battle they did not want to wade into. Our history as Unitarian Universalists has shining moments of courage in the face of oppression and injustice and moments of mute indifference. The story of Don Speed Smith Goodloe is one where his brilliance was shut out from our faith by mute indifference. And in my estimation, mute indifference is one of the greatest evils oppression and injustice. And in the case of this story, racism has wrought upon the world. I'm reminded of the black theologian Barbara Brown in her book, Race and the Cosmos, when she was reflecting on her role in the civil rights movement. She reflected that as white segregationists were chanting and beating on the doors of a church the civil rights marchers were spending the night in, she reflected, and I quote, Oh, how we marveled at the hatred, the spittle, the exposed genitals and urine aimed in our direction. To be hated so completely was almost a relief. There it was for the whole world to see. We had not been paranoid and deluded. This was what the struggle had opposed from the beginning. Sometimes in violence and in extremism, as Brown was reflecting, we know exactly what is at stake. There it is, laid out for everyone to see what people believe. But in mute indifference, there is a silence whose violence is far worse than any physical violence. Martin Luther King Jr. once remarked that in the end, they will not remember the words of their enemies, but the silence of their friends. Race is hard to talk about, but it must be. It must be recognized for what it is, a social construct that is not going anywhere anytime soon, a large part of the wider story that is America, and an issue that we must get comfortable confronting and exploring so as to avoid the violence of mute indifference, of a silence that perpetuates a world where white nationalists haven't been empowered in 2019. For me, one of the defining images of our current era will be of white men marching on Charlottesville with lit torches, chanting racist slogans and throwing their hands up in Nazi salutes. That was 2017. 2017. And people want to say they don't see race. That is mute indifference. 
that is perpetuating a world where such marches are empowered. Now, at this point, it would be easy for us to shut down despair and say there is nothing we could possibly do. Some of us might be feeling guilt, and really, guilt is not an entirely bad thing. It is a valid emotion. And if there's anything Americans need to do more, is to honor their emotions. And I don't say this as some enlightened, emotionally integrated being here. My culture of origin was good at only two emotions, anger and more anger. That was it. But what do we feel? What do we honestly feel when we think about our own history with race? Whatever emotion we are feeling, it should be honored and validated. Because that is a place to begin. And if you feel nothing, that's also a place to begin. Americans don't like to talk about race. And I should clarify, a lot of it's mostly white Americans. People of color don't just talk about it, they live it every single day. But I wholeheartedly believe that if we can honor our own emotions and get comfortable wading into the massive issue of injustice before us, knowing that it will always be imperfect, that we will always make mistakes, and we won't solve it alone, it is still a worthwhile endeavor. It will strengthen our character, and even if this room, if it's just this room to start, that will have an impact. Many months ago, I introduced a workshop series that your board of directors committed to bringing here to UUCL. The premise is simple. It's a deep dive for Unitarian Universalists to wrestle with the topic of race, learn to talk about it, and most importantly, the so what of such an exercise. So what if we talk about it? What next? That series of workshops was called Beloved Conversations, and it was developed by Meadville Lombard Theological School. You'll remember from our story that Don Speedsmith Goodlow graduated from Meadville, the same school that told him he could never be ordained as a black man. The universe has a weird way of bending toward justice sometimes, doesn't it? But anyway, it is finally coming. After some staff changes, many delays, it is finally coming. And there's already been information about a congregational retreat put out there, and more information is coming in March. Race is not an easy topic. And what this series asks of its participants is to make a commitment to be present for at least seven of the eight workshops it involves. Now, since I arrived here as your minister, people have said they want to do more around racial justice. I hear it all the time. Well, here's an opportunity for us to work on ourselves, to equip ourselves with the tools needed to have meaningful, a meaningful impact on this community and in the wider Lexington community. Throughout the month of March, we'll be signing people up for these, this series of workshops. And honestly, I look forward to seeing how it unfolds. Who do we have sign up? Will we have people sign up? What does it tell us if people do or don't? Race is not going anywhere anytime soon. And we will need to trust ourselves to be a part of the conversation, to make a commitment, and to not perpetuate mute indifference. What does your voice have to contribute to the work of racial justice? Blessed be.
Amen.